As we get into our teaching this morning, you guys can open up in your Bibles or on your phones to John chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 35. And while you guys are opening up there, I've had this recurring sentence going through my mind. It came to me Friday night as I was talking with a group uh, at our house. Uh, Shua had his EP release, which was brilliant. Thank you for having that at our house. It was beautiful. And while I was there sharing with some folks, just talking, this leapt into my mind, and it's been with me all weekend, and I want to open our time together with it this morning. If you're open to your Bibles, if I could just make eye contact with every one of you very briefly, here's what the Lord has been telling me. You are not in trouble. <laughs> like, you're not in trouble. You are not being punished. You need to hear this morning that you are more loved than you could ever imagine, and you are not in trouble. You haven't done something where God is like, you know what, I'm going to just kind of flick them about in life and mess with them a little bit because they're really upsetting me. It's actually the opposite. God wants you to know you are not in trouble with him, and you are absolutely loved by him. Now, with that opening kind of sentence, to get into our teaching this morning, get our brain juices going, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had times in life where you were confused? <laughs> where circumstantially you were like, what is this? And as you've been searching the scriptures, have you ever come across points in scripture where you're like, nay, nope, does not line up, does not make sense to me? Just by a show of hands, how many of us have ever had moments in scripture where we're like, I have no clue what that means. Just, you guys are so humble. <laughs> I love that. We are going to talk about some of Jesus's most difficult and complex teachings this morning. So everybody get your thinking caps on, settle in, lean in. Let's pray. John chapter six, beginning in verse 35. Father, we invite you now to be our teacher to illuminate our hearts and minds and to bring to pass the work that you want to accomplish in our souls. And with pure faith today, just as when a child runs to their daddy's arms and says, daddy, I love you. Today we say, father, I love you. Jesus, son of God, my big brother and my king and my savior, I love you. Holy Spirit, I love you. Come and meet with us and shape us. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? 
Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to dial in this morning on something that Jesus said that when you read it for the very first time, or maybe hear it for the very first time, it's jarring. It can be very disorienting when we come across certain teachings that Jesus gave because they absolutely do not make any sense to our minds. But I want to encourage you, if we will be patient with Jesus's words, and if we're willing to slow down and really reflect on what he was saying, his words become a source of flourishing for us and pure joy for us. So here's what we want to emphasize and highlight this morning. In verse 37, Jesus taught, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And then in verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Have you ever come across these passages where you're like, what? What? Uh, What is he saying? Like, what, what is going on here? Read at face value, this is hard stuff. I mean, is Jesus saying that the only reason that anyone comes to him is because the Father is drawing them? What does, that, what does that mean for our free will, for our choice in the matter? And how do we know if the Father has drawn us? And how do we know who the Father is drawing? And, and how does all of this stuff, how does all this stuff work? And the truth is, I have no clue. I don't know. <laughs> That's it. It's time to go home. <laughs> I'll just leave you guys with that. This is the reality. We need to meditate on these things, take away some lessons from these confusing words of Jesus, and rather than trying to stand over them, we need to let our souls come under them and let them become supportive to the foundations of our life that we would flourish and find true joy. Here's where we want to start with these complex, sometimes seemingly contradictory teachings of Jesus. Christian theology that is the whole of our beliefs, Christian teaching, it is full of paradox. Can you guys all say paradox, paradox, paradox. Webster's defines paradox as, paradox is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or it seems opposed to common sense and yet it is perhaps true. Let me just say that one more time. Here's the definition of paradox. It is a statement that at face value seems completely contradictory or it seems opposed to itself or opposed to common sense, yet perhaps is still true. Whenever we, under, whenever we engage in Christian learning and we develop a Christian theology, we need to understand that there are points of Christian teaching and Christian practice that are not confusing at all. They're very, very clear. Take, for example, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. 
It's not like anybody comes across the Ten Commandments and is like, what? Thou shalt not kill. I don't understand what it's saying. It's very clear what it says. We can easily understand it. But as you travel, as you journey, and you're learning around the, the biblical narrative and this thing we call Christian theology, there are multiple points of Christian teaching and theology that are very complex and very clouded. So much so that Peter said of his friend Paul that Paul's letters, quote, contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, 2 Peter 3.16. And so there is the danger for us to distort who God is and to be, un to be unstable in our relationship with God when we come across these complex and sometimes apparently contradictory teachings that are cloudy, that are confusing. But to not be unstable and to not distort who God is in this world, we have to trust the paradox. We have to trust what seems to be contradictory, but could still possibly be true in and of itself. So when Jesus says in this passage in John 6, all who come to me, I will never drive them away. Jesus is emphasizing the biblical truth that all humanity, every human must of their own will and volition choose to trust Jesus, choose to come to him, He's emphasizing the fact that God actually wants us to choose him. God actually wants us to surrender to him by our own will. The whole of the biblical narrative is full of this big theme that God wants to partner with humans to accomplish his will in the world. But then within the same paragraph, when Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the father draws them, there Jesus is parting the curtain. He's emphasizing this mystery of God, that the God who made all things, he is behind the, the cosmic scenes, bringing about partnership with humans, initiating their relationship with him, bringing about belief in the heart of humans. Both of these emphasis that God would have us to choose and trust of our own will, that God must draw us unto himself. Both of these emphasis are equally true. It's paradox. And so for us to know God and obey God, you guys, honestly, if you don't figure this out early in your journey into Christian theology, you're going to be so frustrated because so many of the teachings in the Bible must be held in tension. The scriptures, they literally are simple enough for like a five-year-old to understand the basic concepts and the basic teaching, but the scriptures are also so terribly complex that some of the most brilliant minds humanity has ever produced will spend their entire career studying one single facet of it, writing big, thick, boring books that nobody's going to read about it. Here at Neighbors, we are literally committed to what we call theological balance, we want to be theologically balanced in our beliefs and in our behaviors because within Christianity, paradox is absolutely everywhere. Let me just give you a few examples. At the centerpiece of Christian theology is God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one essence. Paradox. God draws us, yet we must come. God is unchanging, immutable, as the old theologians would call him. And yet, 
he changes his plan and heart according to our prayers. We see it over and over throughout the biblical narrative. God is utterly holy. He is completely perfect and justified in his anger against humans who have rebelled against his will after having created them. But he is also simultaneously utterly merciful, full of grace and head over heels in love with those that might be considered in any other circumstance, his enemies. It's not only our belief, you guys, that's tensioned by paradox. It's our practices as well. The way that we behave as Christians. Godly speech is always tethered to times of deep silence. Silence is what forms godly speech. Fasting is always held in balance by feasting, and feasting is always tethered with fasting. Community, which I'm pushing you into, we're all pushing you into, every single week is also tensioned by times of deep solitude, just becoming aware of self, so that then when you back enter back into that community of other selves, there's a deeper certainty of who you are in Jesus with those selves. We say that stillness is actually what brings about Godly activity, it enhances it. Everything is in tension. Is everybody tracking with this? Belief and behavior, tensioned, paradox. Paradox and tensions, they are everywhere in the Bible and throughout Christian behavior. And healthy disciples of Jesus, that's us. We don't want to try to get rid of one over the other. We always want to allow these tensions to be pulling at each other tighter and tighter and tighter by surrendered faith. Where Christianity loses course is when we overemphasize one facet of a paradox over the other. When we overemphasize one practice over the other. When we began planting this church with our values of simplicity and stillness and spirit, I had a, ton, I had a number of church planting friends and mentors saying, Dan, you're going you're gonna to plant a church out of stillness? Like you're going to have a community of hippies pondering their navels every Sunday morning. <laughs> what are you doing? And yet the reality is we don't want to overemphasize stillness. We believe that stillness leads to being truly able to hear the spirit so that the spirit can anoint us in our activity. Do you see that? When we begin to overemphasize, as they did in the first centuries, that Jesus was only human, you get ancient heresies like doceticism. When you begin to overemphasize that he was only God, you get various Christian heresies that aren't actually representing who God actually is. You see, in behavior and in belief, everywhere we must hold these things tethered, tensioned, pulling deeply, 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 strongly, 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 keeping us right in that middle place of a balanced theology and a balanced practice that makes us more and more like Jesus as we are with Jesus so that we might reveal the true Jesus to the world around us. Now, I said when I opened up, and here's where we're going to wrap up, that if we will slow down and reflect on these, these paradoxical teachings of Jesus, if we'll really slow down, these teachings actually become a catalyst that transform us. When they get into our bloodstream, when they get into our soul, when we feed on them, which is what John 6 is all about, they begin to nourish us and bring about flourishing and so this particular paradox this morning that Jesus addresses, that God drew you to belief 
And yet you had to choose to believe four things about it. Number one, it's humbling. Number two, it's convicting. Number three, it's comforting. And number four, it's unifying. If you're taking notes, Jesus's paradox this morning is humbling. It's convicting, it's comforting, and it's unifying. This teaching is humbling because in my mind, at least the way that my brain works, I'm very analytical. Things need to make sense. They need to go in a certain order. As an armchair philosopher and a wannabe lawyer, I think that things should go in order and arguments build on top of arguments. And then you get to these seemingly contradictory places and you're like, oh my gosh, what is it? And what it's done for me is it's actually, it's humbled me and proved that when we're reading the Bible and these teachings, we're actually interacting with the mind of God and not the mind of a human. The difficult concepts in the Bible, because God claims to have revealed himself from within the pages and the stories of the Bible, when things are apparently contradictory, contradictory but still possibly true, that is pointing to a mind that is beyond our mind. If we humans were going to make up a religion, which we have, with the help of demonic influence across the globe, those religions, they all make sense to us. You do A, God does B. You sacrifice here, God does this for you. You make God mad, he does that. You make God glad, he does that. Totally makes sense. But when we come to Christianity, we suddenly realize we are dealing with a mind that is more than our mind. A God that exceeds our ability and oversteps our common sense and moves outside of the bounds of our rationality. And that paradox, when you slow down, when you finally just slow down and say, whoa, 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth made these apparently contradictory claims And yet if I'll slow down and sit at his feet and just listen to his teaching, I suddenly am humbled realizing that this peasant carpenter wasn't just a bad philosopher. He was God in our midst, presenting this paradox for us to trust in. If we would humble ourselves, we find ourselves realizing maybe I don't know everything in the universe, which is quite a shock to the system for somebody like me. (laughs) When you wake up in front of this teaching, you're like, wait, I don't know everything? I don't know how it all works. Maybe God is bigger and wiser than I am. And so I should wrestle with this and I should trust and I should learn versus trying to fit God into what totally makes sense to me. As well, this paradox that Jesus gives us, we're humbled and I love this. You may really wrestle with this and I want to invite you to wrestle even more deeply. It is terribly humbling to realize that we came to Jesus not because we were smarter or more perceptive or more broken than other people, but because God drew us. You believe today, not because you were more broken. And it's not as if our unbelieving friends and family members just aren't as wise as we are because we chose the right course of life. It's excruciatingly humbling to come to this moment and realize I believe because my father drew me to this place of belief out of his mercy and out of his grace. In the mystery of God, we weren't even in the driver's seat of our own belief. And as we've been saying over and over and over through the gospel of John, we are not the master. Jesus, our father, our creator, the Holy Spirit, he is the master. Now, to balance that, to tension that, to tether that whole point, 
if that's humbling, then this next little piece is tethered to our responsibility and it's terribly convicting, deeply, deeply convicting. Jesus's teaching is convicting because while we have this mystery around us that surpasses our rationality and our ability to kind of fit it into our system, we also have right in front of us the very clear call through the entire gospel of John that we must choose to come to Jesus. It must be our will that yields itself to God by faith. Whoever comes to me, whoever comes, I will never drive away. And so from our earthly experience today, every day, we must make decisions about Jesus and what we decide about Jesus we're accountable for. Ben Wetherington, he's one of my favorite New Testament scholars on the Gospel of John. He has this great little paragraph. I'm going to read it to you. He says, It is one thing to say that Jesus will not turn away anyone who comes to him. It is another to say that he will force them to stay or be faithful against their will. Both God's sovereign grace and human response play a role in human salvation, but even one's human response is enabled by God's grace. God's role in the relationship is incomparably greater than the human one, but the fact remains that God does not and will not save a person without that positive human response called faith to the divine leading and drawing. Paradox. Tension. In belief and in behavior. We are not to stand over these paradoxical teachings and say, you know, I'm not going to follow Jesus because Jesus doesn't make any sense to me. He doesn't fit into my rational system. That's making God in our old image. Number two, on the Ten Commandments, which are very clear, do not do that. <laughs> As well, we are not to play fast and loose. Coming out of certain theological systems, and if you were part of these systems, you may know what I'm talking about. Once saved, always saved. These types of systems, Calvinism, Arminianism, the different names for these different theological tributaries. I've been around kids. I've been around Christians. Well, the Bible says that God drew me. Therefore, I can do whatever I want with my life. I prayed the prayer when I was a little kid. Therefore, I can play fast and loose with God's drawing kindness. That is a direct denial that our souls are formed by the decisions that we make and we're accountable for those choices. The human person who says, I can do whatever I want in this life because you know God will forgive. Or I can live my life exactly the way that I want to live my life because I said a prayer to Jesus a long time ago in youth group, therefore I'm good. Gently and carefully and tenderly, I think Jesus would say, that soul is in, in grave danger. That heart is actually being not drawn by the Father, but drawn by the flesh into its own darkness, not to God in light and truth. Jesus' teaching is convicting. Like, it gets right down under the soul skin where you're like, oh, that's making me squirm a little bit. Ouch. Because, because Jesus' teaching leaves no room for us to point the finger and blame a kind God who drew us for drawing or not drawing. That's the mystery. We can't know that. That's outside of the bounds of rationality. What we can know is that we were drew, 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 What we can know is that we were drawn by conviction and that we're making choices according to our own will for which we will be held accountable. That is what we can know. 
it doesn't work this way where we get to kind of point the finger at God and say, you draw, you don't draw. If we hear his words and our souls are stirred in any given moment, we're to let that conviction birth a response to him in submission and trust, not further denial and rebellion. And here's the deal. If God is drawing and we come under that sense of conviction, I want to choose Jesus. I want to choose to trust him. I'm going to surrender my world to be his world. When we choose to believe that, this paradoxical teaching that God draws and we choose, it becomes a source of ultimate comfort. Like full Barco lounger laid back. I'm going to rest in this teaching with my soul finally becoming still. It becomes so comforting. Verse 37, again, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Within this mysterious paradoxical teaching, Jesus is saying, he will not deny you and I, no matter where we are. No matter how much we've been deconstructing because we were raised in a theological system that didn't make any sense to us, so we thought we'd throw out the baby with the bathwater, the moment we turn and say, I'm going to keep exploring this Jesus thing, I'm going to come back into theological balance, I'm going to press back into community, Jesus is there with open arms, on tippy-toe, head over heels, ready to bring you in and continue to guide you, continue to lead you. There is no decision that we have ever made within our own volition or will that would cause Jesus to drive us away. And he will also never let us go. So within this paradoxical teaching that he draws and we decide, verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. God drew us with cords of love and kindness. God bent the universe and the circumstances of our lives to humble us and to break us and to draw us to surrendered belief. And he promises us that he will not lose us. I have, just in full transparency, it's a value that we have here at Neighbors. In my past, deconstructed to the point where I have tried to just walk away. Walk away from the church, walk away from leadership, walk away from Christianity. And yet somehow, some way, God in his kindness, working through my circumstances, speaking to my brain, has never allowed me to just walk away. I just can't do it. Tethered by his love. That is the height of comfort for me. That not even you in your brilliance can out, outmaneuver God. He has you. He'll never let you go. He drew you. You are his. Revel in that. Barco lounger, lounge your soul in that. He who placed a trillion suns in the universe and he who holds creation together by the power of his words, he set his sights on you. He will never turn away from you. He will never let you go. Even when you're kicking and scrambling and screaming about it, he has you wants you, desires you, loves you, and will raise you at the last day. Finally, these paradoxical teachings, if they're humbling, and then there's that moment of squirming where they become convicting, and then we surrender and trust and they become comforting, they are also a deep source of unity. They unify us. They unify us with God and with each other. First, with God. I think that we have this fast food Christianity in the modern West, and we don't recognize the value 
of long seasons of wrestling and being uncertain, of being confused. We have been trained by quick tweets and short Instagram posts that you can answer all of the complexities of life within those little tiny moments. When in fact, God would have us to wrestle with these things. So when we come across these paradoxical teachings, God wants us now to enter into this, this meditative thinking, wrestling. I'm going to read some more books. I'm going to read on this side. I'm going to read on that side. He wants us to think more deeply. He wants us to pray more earnestly. He wants us to seek counsel from teachers and mentors. And all of that, you guys, is the process that Jesus feeds our souls with, forming us in his likeness. It's that wrestling. It's that, oh, I don't know. It's that studying more. It's asking more questions. It's seeking more mentorship. It's, it's not having the quick answer where Jesus is unifying us with himself in our prayers, in those moments of surrender, in those moments of wrestling, unifying us. It's those points of teaching that really perplex us. That's where God is wanting to do deep work in our souls, revealing all sorts of stuff, drawing us into himself. And so there's no need for us to flee from these things or try to get these things to fit into our system. These are all invitations to intimacy by faith, and they also unify us with each other. Now, I of all people am so aware of this. Throughout the history of the church, these paradoxical ideas, God draws, we choose. The church is divided over these things. The church has gone to war with itself over these things. We emphasize God's sovereignty. We emphasize human responsibility. Therefore, we're not family. This is simply not the case. We actually believe here at Neighbors that God is in this process of, of beginning to, to renew his church. He's beginning to bring about a, a, a surrendered renewal to this generation of the church. And when God begins to renew things, he what we used to think was so important to divide over, it becomes a source of unity. And I, I actually experienced this anecdotally at seminary. Let me explain. I was invited in uh, myself, Evan. That's how Evan and I met and planted Park Hill. And then now we're planting neighbors together. I was part of this cohort. There was about 15 of us as students. We represented this very broad spectrum of perspectives and beliefs. And so when I arrived, I was on one side of the coin. I was a hard, what you would call a hardcore Calvinist. God is sovereign. God rules all things. Humans... It was very fatalistic. And so I was committed to that, and I would argue for that. Across from me was, uh, I'll just tell you his name. His name is Josh. And he was what we call in the theological world an open theist, an open theist. Josh essentially interpreted the scriptures in such a way that he would say, God cannot know a future that does not exist because the future doesn't exist yet. Nothing is determined. Therefore, we have total free will. Okay. So you guys have the two, the two spectrums. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I don't have time to get into the details of all this. Our positions, both of us were very thoughtful and very nuanced, okay? We, it wasn't nearly as simple as I just presented it. It wasn't nearly as cookie cutter as I just presented it, all right? Suffice it to say, Josh and I uh, disagreed. <laughs> and uh, here's the deal. Through that time, we were in cohort together for almost four years, and through that time, let's call them some very intense debates. <laughs> um, I grew to just 
love and respect Josh. Like, like he's one of my favorite guys in the whole world. Um, Josh is brilliant. Like, he's one of those smart people that you walk away from, like, I think I know what he said, but it was so smart that I'm not sure exactly what he said, but I know it was really smart. One of those guys. <laughs> and I would spend time with him. We'd get lunch together, and we would talk about Jesus, and we'd talk about these different theological paradigms. And I was deeply convicted by his passion, his obedience to God, his consistency. He wasn't contradictory in his theology at all. And it was through those years together, together, debating and listening and considering and learning that my perspectives didn't drastically change. Like he didn't persuade me to become an open theist, but he certainly broadened, broadened my categories. And I've got to tell you guys, my theology was so fatalistic. I was at a place where I was like, why pray? God's, God's providential, God's sovereign. None of us have anything. Why evangelize? Why do anything? God's going to draw whoever he wants to draw. And it was Josh who actually brought me out of that unbalanced theology. And I'm so, so grateful to that friend of mine. So grateful. I'm one with him. And to this day, Josh and I are very different people. And we are very different theologically still. But I can embrace him with a deep hug of gratitude and appreciation because our differences find unity in that space of paradox. In that space of unified paradox. You're accountable for the way that you present and think and reveal God as you interpret. I'm accountable, but at the end of the day, we're dealing with some paradoxical stuff here. Let's hold hands, pray together, because honestly, the world could care less about what I'm talking about right now, everybody. We care about it, but what the world needs is Jesus. As we close, here's what I want to do. We're going we're gonna to take communion. Today, I know that a sermon like this raises more questions than it answers. And um, after communion, I'll be over here at the picnic tables. Anybody that wants to come over and do like a Q&A, further conversation around Calvinism, Arminianism, uh, predestination, election, human responsibility, volition, libertarian free will, super lapsarianism. You guys want to get into the weeds? We will go for it. I will sit over there all afternoon using really big words that nobody cares about. And we will talk about this and think about it at depth. Okay. But for now, as we come to communion, the greatest paradox of Christianity is the cross of Jesus of Nazareth. You have holy perfection taking all of our wrong into himself. You have infinite love and eternal life, the source of life, giving up life. Not so that he can come to us and say, I judge you. I'm angry with you. I'm punishing you but so that he can come and embrace us and say, you know what? I know you are so confused right now, but you have to trust. And the cross, the paradox of the cross, that an all unknowing, all-knowing God would come to an unknowing people and condescend to us and say, here's what it's going to take for you to be with me. I have to absorb your rebellion, your little pragmatic, rational schemes of who I am, your little systems that describe me perfectly, that's not me. And by the way, it doesn't reveal my glory. And by the way, I actually have to die for that. I actually have to absorb that wrong into myself because that wrong representation of me, that wrong relationship with me is what has wrecked the whole world. So the great paradox of the cross is that sin and rebellion is judged ultimately in Jesus. He absorbs it all. He takes it all for you. The great 
humbling paradox of the cross is that we cannot attain unity with God apart from God saying, I will absorb into myself what separates you from me. And you have to trust that. You have to humble yourself under the conviction of the Spirit and say, I will trust that and I will let the cross be the filter through which I see all the confusing, complex things of this world. If God loved me and if God loved this world enough to send his sin, the Son, to become sin for me, that great paradox, then the rest of it, all the confusing stuff, all the circumstances through which we interpret ourselves as in trouble or not loved or God isn't good, they all get reframed at the paradox of the cross where there's simplicity and wholeness and faith and love and acceptance and safety and security. And so communion is just a time where we remember that. We come and we hold a little piece of bread and cup and I forgot to get somebody to hand out communion. Lex, are, is Lex here? Nyla or Lex? Lex will come up and she's going to have a bowl for communion. And so as Shua leads us in worship, I want to invite you to come up and we're going to grab the little plastic cups, the COVID safe communion things. Ah, I'm so ready for COVID to be over. We're going to take these little cups and we're going to hold on to them. And then we're going to sit in the paradox of the cross, just remembering that love is expressed there. That despite, despite our kind of trying to squeeze God into our own system, God blows that system apart with this infinite act of love. And maybe the greatest paradox of all is that the dead rise. The paradox of Christian belief and Christian practice is that what we're all running from and trying to make sense of and fleeing with all of our heart, mind, and soul and strength, fleeing this deformity called death. The great paradox is that death is the gateway to true life. Jesus died and resurrected. And so too, he has promised us as he did here in John 6, when we nourish ourselves on his words, when we place our full life in him, when he's the center of our gravity and our source, he promises us, I will not drive you away. I will not let you go and I will raise you at the last day. Father, as we come to communion this morning, I'm just praying now that your Holy Spirit would meet with us. I have wrestled so deeply with every one of these points of doctrine my whole life. Since I became a Christian, I've been confused by Christianity, literally. And 20 years later, studying Christianity, I'm still just as confused by Christianity, but I'm not confused by the cross of Jesus. So as we come today as a family, as we come to eat together with you, Jesus, resting in the paradox that you drew us, but that we decided to come, resting in the paradox of the cross that says we are infinitely sinful, but more loved than we could ever imagine. Please wash over us with your love and your gentleness and your kindness. Draw us, draw those today who need to decide to repent. Make certain in their soul your love for them, your care for them, that you brought them here. You bent the universe and set up every circumstance of their life for them to hear these very words, I love you, from Jesus. And so bind us together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As Shua begins to sing, I would just invite you to, you guys can line up over here. Lex will have the communion. Take the communion elements back to where